secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Lori Erickson has written five books and more than a thousand articles, most of them about travel. Her latest is the memoir, Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God, in which she describes trips to a dozen holy places, from Jerusalem to Machu Picchu in Peru to Walden Pond. She'll appear February 6th as a guest of the Thurber House. More information on her visit is available at crafttheshow.com. Welcome to Craft, Lori Erickson. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Now, in the beginning of the book, you describe uh, finding books by John L. Stoddard as a child and being deeply influenced by the books. Can you tell us a little bit about Stoddard and his influence on you and your development as a traveler? I grew up on an Iowa farm and my parents never traveled anywhere. And so my introduction to the world of travel really came through those uh, through those books. Stoddard was a Victorian adventurer who uh, traveled around the world around uh, the early 1900s and then came back to the United States and delivered lectures. And then he also produced this series of books. And I was fascinated by the sepia-toned photographs and by his adventures around the world. And that's what really ignited my love for travel. Okay. Now, he gets to be called an adventurer, and you choose the uh, the title Traveler. Where do you get to move to the, that level <laughs> for an adventurer? Uh, because you, you describe all of yours as pilgrimages, and I would really think that it, they'd be more adventures. I think those words are fluid, and I think it depends on the day and on the trip. Uh, okay how you would identify yourself. But I, I think the heart of all those words, though, is this sense of being open to change on a trip, uh, that it's not just relaxation, but it's a journey that can change you. Mm-hmm. So one of the dozen trips that you talk about in the book is to a Trappist monastery in Kentucky, the Abbey of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the former home of the monk writer Thomas Merton. Now, Mm -hmm. I I have to confess that other than the monks of New Skeet and their dog guides, I had not really thought about the existence of monasteries in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So tell me about how the visit went. Well, first of all, I think a lot of people aren't aware that uh, the monastic tradition is a living tradition in the United States as well as in corners of Europe. And these are places that that may be declining in the number of of monks and and nuns who live there, but who are doing a pretty booming business in in retreats. Uh, On weekends, they're often booked many months in advance. And my experience at the Abbey in Kentucky, I think, is, is pretty similar to what often happens. You immerse yourself in the quiet. Uh, You can take part in the services there if you want, but you don't have to. Uh, And I was fortunate enough to get the chance to interview one of the monks there. And so one of the stories I tell in the book is is my slightly awkward interview with a Trappist monk who's taken a vow of near silence. Uh, uh, (laughs) They're not really chatty interview subjects. Right. I think you got one word uh, as a response. You know, Uh it's a powerful word, but still. Right. Right. One word. Uh huh. And then I decided to end the interview because he pretty much answered everything I could possibly ask him. You know, as far as uh, I've done a lot of interviews and as as interviews go, uh, your description of that one uh, was sort of uh, amusing and terrifying. 
because you know the, you ask a question and there's this long, long silence, and uh, you indicate that you just waited for him to respond, and uh, he gives a one-word response, and you end the interview, and it's it seemed to be like, wow, that's got to be really tough to write about, except to just say, here's what happened in the interview, you know? Yes. Well, it, and thank goodness it wasn't radio. Uh, right. Yes. Yeah. You get the chance to do that when you're writing rather than uh, interviewing someone on online. But I actually have had some really, one of the things I love about my work is getting the chance to interview people who often don't get interviewed, uh, like monks and um, Zen teachers and uh, people who have devoted their lives to a life of the spirit. And they often have very, very interesting things to say. But they're often fairly slow in saying those things. Have you adapted your interview style a lot to work with uh, folks like that that you're interviewing, where you maybe slow down the question, just give mm-hmm. them, like you say, a lot more time to answer? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I have become more comfortable with silence uh, as a result of being around these people. And often I think it does take a while to collect your thoughts. And if you've been steeped in this sort of interior exploration for a long time, it's not surprising that it's hard to give a soundbite for what you've learned or what other people can learn from that path. When you go into the mode now of you're deciding to to do a pilgrimage, walk me through the sort of decisions that lead you to go somewhere. What leads you to say, all right, I want to visit this place or that place, even say a place like Machu Picchu that's... I guess I hadn't thought of it until I saw it included in this book as as a holy site. I had thought of it as the remains of a civilization. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, one of the things I try to do in my book and in my work is to broaden the definition of what a holy site is. That a holy site is a place that connects us to something often deeper and older and uh, something that opens us up, uh, changes us. And so in the book, for example, I include Walden Pond and the site of Thoreau's cabin uh, as a holy site because it was a it was it was a place I thought where the sacred really spoke to me and clearly speaks to a lot of people, given the thousands of people who who show show up there. So in terms of choosing where to go, I I trust a lot in serendipity, uh, and I think that messages come to us in in various ways. books that find their way into our hands and um, friends who suggest things, uh, magazine articles that we happen to run across. And, And often I think we have this sense of, oh, that sounds really interesting. And then, and then you can't quite give up the idea. You think, oh, I'd like to go there. And, and for some reason that you can't really articulate, that place calls to you. And I think that's often how a pilgrimage starts, mm-hmm. is with that sort of call that seems to come from beyond. So when you have a call like that, um, I, you know, in the book you talk about um, your husband uh, frequently accompanying you. Mm-hmm. How, what kind of discussions do you have? Do you say, oh, I've been called to this place and Bob, your husband may well say, you know what, I don't, I'm not feeling the call <laughs> to go to South America. Uh, how does that work for you? Well, first of all, I have a, I have a great husband who's, who's almost always up for a trip, no matter where. Uh, and some of these trips I have taken on my own or taken as part of my work as a journalist. And so I was part of a media trip, for example. Um, but I, I do think 
you know, sometimes you do want to go just on your own. In fact, I would say probably more often than not, you should probably go on your own or go with people who don't expect to be in your company all the time. Because a lot of the experience of being on pilgrimage is to have the time to reflect and to go where the the spirit calls you there. So at a place like Machu Picchu, for example, I write about the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds of other people when I was there. And so a big part of my, my time there was to try to find a place where I could be by myself. Uh, and so on a pilgrimage off, and especially to a place that's very popular, there is that, that tension between the crowds and needing to find a place where you can be alone with your thoughts. What place of the dozen that you visited do you revisit the most frequently in your mind? Uh, the the holy site that I, I think I love the most, if you if you told me I could only go to one uh, again for the rest of my life, is Bear Butte in South Dakota which is a holy place that a lot of people haven't heard of. Uh, It's a a state park, uh, as well as a holy site for uh, a number of Indian tribes, including the Lakota. And it's a pilgrimage place. It's a place where a number of uh, revered Indian leaders had visions, including Red Cloud and it's a it's a thin place, which is another sort of definition of a holy site, a place where the veil between worlds is thin. Uh, and it's a place that I've returned to again and again in part because uh, my in-laws live in the area. But it also is a place that is sort of mine in a way. Of course, it belongs to many people and also belongs to no one. But it's a place I go back to again and again. What makes it a thin place? You know, a lot of people would visit Bear Butte and think, well, it's sort of, I mean, it's okay, but it's sort of denuded of trees and there are a lot prettier places to walk in the Black Hills of South Dakota. I think... I think it has to do with sort of the response that I have to it. It's a place that makes me want to be silent and quiet. It's a place where I almost immediately start to notice things like the sound of the wind and the rustling of the grasses. It's a place that helps me get out of the incessant chatter of my own interior life. So it works for me. It doesn't work for everybody, but I think, but I think, that's what I try to do in my book is encourage people to go out and find those places that help you do that. As I was reading through this, I kept sort of reflecting back on my own uh, difficult relationship with travel (laughs) because I understand the intellectual and uh, spiritual fulfillment that travel offers. At the same time, uh, you know, some of the worst sleep, worst beds, (laughs) worst food. Uh, One time when I was in Paris, uh, the daughter of the uh, restaurant owner uh, talked me into eating beef, which arrived raw and in thin slices. (laughs) And I thought, this little girl is attempting to poison me. Um, So, you know, uh, so it's it's an interesting thing that that it's almost like the deprivations of travel um, lead to maybe a sense of of greater spirituality on a a pilgrimage? Is that something that has uh, affected you as you travel? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the points I make in the book is that uh, travel and travail come from the same root, and that for (laughs) most of human history, travel was extremely difficult. And uh, 
part, though, of a pilgrimage is actually that effort and often that discomfort that the, the journey becomes as important as reaching your final destination. And, and by the time you get there, you feel like you have worked for it. You feel like you have struggled. And because of that, the, the destination becomes all the more precious to you. So, And I think that's actually one of the problems with pilgrimage in the modern world, that it's very easy it, actually to go to Machu Picchu. You don't have to walk the Inca Trail. You could take an airplane and then you take a train and then you take a bus and then you're there. Uh, or to get to Rome or Jerusalem, you get you step on an airplane. And of course, it makes so much sense to do it that way. It saves so much time. But pilgrimage for most of human history took months, sometimes years. Right. And, and so those were journeys that really had the chance to, to work on you and change you. So, but I still think you can have a genuine pilgrimage, even when you fly or even when you do it on a, a weekend for to a retreat center or wherever. But I think you have to work harder at it because of it. You know, that's funny. Uh, suddenly I feel guilty about complaining about a two hour flight delay uh, <laughs> because I'm not in the, but I'm often, you know, pilgrimage to Chicago or something <laughs> yeah. like that, that it's less, uh, uh -huh. less necessarily holy. Well, right. Laurie, Laurie Erickson, I thank you very much for talking to me today, and I look forward to you appearing as a guest on February 6th at the Thurber House, and where we'll hear more about your book and your world travels. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Doug. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. <laughs>